you'll have a barista at a coffee shop making minimum wage in D.C., who has a non-compete clause saying that they can't work at another coffee shop as a barista for years within, you know, hundreds of miles. If you're an 18-year-old who signed this contract, you don't know what's enforceable and what isn't. Hello, this is The Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today is Molly Coleman, executive director at People's Parity Project. The People's Parity Project is made up of law students and attorneys organizing nationwide to change how our laws and our legal profession favor the rich and powerful, and shield corporations from accountability. Molly helped found the group as a student at Harvard Law School and has now made it her career to tackle this challenge. We had a very good conversation, and I learned a lot about how and why the law needs to be fixed and what lawyers can do about it. You should listen. So after a quick word from my sponsor, my interview with Molly Coleman with the People's Parity Project. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from Time Plots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. Time Plots Library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Molly, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Yeah. So my name is Molly Coleman. I am the executive director of People's Parity Project, an organization that I co-founded as a law student back in 2018. I've been our full-time executive director since graduation in 2020. I work and live in St. Paul, Minnesota, where I was born and raised, grew up here, left for a variety of places, including college at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, spent several years both before and after college working in public education. I worked for City Year New York for three years doing both direct work in public schools in Harlem and the Bronx, but also working in civic engagement of young people, working with AmeriCorps volunteers, both as an AmeriCorps member and then managing AmeriCorps members. And I think like many folks in social justice, civic engagement work, found that we were dealing with a lot of problems that were caused by broken systems, broken systems at the top, and wanted to find a way to do more systemic work to advance progress. So made the decision to go to law school. And here we are. I've been doing this work and really at PPP almost ever since. That's a very clean summary of a lot that went on over a fair period of time. 30 years and 30 seconds. (laughs) Well, I'm well ahead of you there. Just to go back over a little of it for clarification, I guess. Tell me a little bit about University of Wisconsin-Madison. My connection there is that the former many-term mayor is Paul Soglin, 
right? You may have run into that name. His brother married my sister, but I'm curious about your time there at that fine university. Yeah. Yeah. Mary Toglin was in office when I was there. I had a very mixed experience at the University of Wisconsin, which I think is rare. People tend to love the University of Wisconsin from the moment they step foot on campus. I was coming there after having done a gap year. So I had worked in New York, was a little bit older than my peers in the dorm and my classes and found it to be a very challenging experience at first. It was by far the most homogenous environment I had ever been in. I grew up in inner city public schools here in St. Paul, had been in New York, um, and really was surprised by how white the University of Wisconsin-Madison was, how in some ways sheltered many of my classmates felt. I think Wisconsin, UW-Madison has this reputation as this incredible liberal institution. Madison is this liberal bubble in this purple to reddish state. And that's what I expected. I was there right after the initial Scott Walker protest. So really felt like I was going to be going into this place where we were on the forefront of fighting for change and justice. And while there certainly is a lot of that energy in Madison, it took me a while to find it. And it took me a while to connect with those groups, those people who are doing the really important work. So I found it really challenging. I I eventually found my place there and I threw out, got a great education, had amazing professors, learned a lot. But definitely it was in many ways exposure to groups to people that I hadn't spent much time around. There's more, uh, frankly, there was a broader range of political beliefs that first year than I had encountered growing up in St. Paul. It was an educational experience in many ways, and, and I came to love it, but it took a while. I'm curious about that gap year now. The kids that I know, particularly facing uh, entry around COVID, there were so many people taking gap years and some pe- many people who considered it and didn't, or even did it a year later. Tell me about how you think the theory of that works. Because it seemed to complexify your freshman year a little bit. Was it valuable? Why was it valuable in your case? I absolutely would recommend it to anybody. I'm so glad I did it. And it definitely did, I think, make my freshman year a little bit more complicated, a little bit harder, but certainly wouldn't exchange it for anything. It For me, there was no big... I give it so little thought. I was 17 and I was like, I want to do more. I want to be more engaged in the community. I want to do real work. I want to do something to think beyond myself and beyond what I think your freshman year of college can often be about, which is self-exploration and and a little bit self-centered in, in some really good and important ways. And also was trying to think about how do you grow and develop as a person in, in other ways and what might that look like. And was really fortunate to stumble upon City Year for an organization that has many challenges, it was really wonderful for me at 18 and continued to be after I graduated from college when I went back. I loved it. It was a fun excuse to move to New York. I've, I've been hearing about it for a long time. Who was the founder? So Alan Casey and Michael Brown, who funnily were both Harvard Law grads, which is where I ended up at law school, but they founded it in God, the late 80s, early 90s. So it's been around for a while It predates AmeriCorps, although now is an AmeriCorps organization and really started off as a general civic engagement organization, whereas it's now really, really focused on closing the opportunity gap in public schools around the country. Yeah. I I talked to another founder of an organization a number of years ago who worked closely with Alan and he ran for Senate, was it, or governor 
in Massachusetts. And then I think she staffed that campaign. And so trying to put all these things together. What was the hardest thing in that year? Oh, it, it was a hard year. I mean, that's what makes impact often, isn't it? It is. Although I think one of the the challenges that AmeriCorps and City are now struggling with is how much do you have to sacrifice in order to make an impact? And what are we asking of young people? And what does service mean? And how much should you have to suffer or sacrifice in order to serve your communities? We were working 12-hour days, getting to schools at 7 o'clock, leaving at 7 at night, working with kids who were being systematically failed on every level all day, every day and making, you know, I think I made like $12,000. I was also working at a bookstore 30 hours a week to like, oh my God. a bunk bed in a one bedroom apartment with two roommates. So it was a hard year. I, all of it. I was also 18. So, you know, everything is hard. But also you can bear the bad mattress. You don't know better in some ways. And I always say like New York is, if you're going to be 18 and broke, New York is a very fun place to do it, especially if all of your friends are in a similar situation. So it was challenging in in ways that later led me to law school, which was just it, it, you are trying to do so much and to make up for so many failures of our government, of our nonprofit industrial complex, you're making up for generations of systematic disinvestment. And not to mention poor parenting and drugs and all kinds of things, right? Although I'll say that it's something that people will go to when you're talking about, frankly, the schools like I went to growing up or, you know, South Bronx, Harlem. What I saw is parents who were incredibly engaged, who were working incredibly hard to give their children every single opportunity that they could. And yet at every single turn, we're encountering resistance on the part of the systems that were supposed to be serving them, on the part of the government, on the part of the schools themselves. And almost everybody I met was trying really, really hard. And we've built a country in which it's almost impossible to get ahead. And so just the gravity of that and the immensity of those systems was, you know, it's, it's a daily struggle. And, and the people who do that work day in and day out for years it's remarkable. It's really, really remarkable what people do. How were you changed by that year? I think that for me, when I was in school, when I was in K through 12, you know, going to Central High School here in St. Paul, I failed to understand so much of what I came to see. I, I think that I had more of a anybody can can succeed if they really mm, Oh, I don't know. I, I'm struggling to figure out how to articulate this. I, I don't know that I have a good answer to that. I think that there's a tension that was revealed in our exchange a minute ago between the notion that the system is everything and the notion of personal responsibility or the individual case. And I was talking to a professor of sociology and psychology at Stanford a couple episodes ago, and he said, like, the sociologists say, you know, it's the system and the psychologists say a lot of it has to do with what's going on with you and the traumas and the individual case. And he said, they're both right. I think that's where I am in that, like, I've been around 57 years. I've seen a lot of families. I've seen how unfair the world is. I've also seen how a particular case is a particular case. And sometimes it isn't just the system. It's also something bad was happening 
in a particular place in a particular house. And so I think that sometimes we progressives struggle a bit with going one way or the other on this, where the world is complicated. It is not impossible to move in our society. If you look at the statistics, yes, a lot of people don't, but yes, actually a lot of people do. There is social mobility. There may be a decline in it. It may, may require a lot of luck, but you do see lots of cases where somebody in a crappy high school with poor parents extricates themselves. And then we want to say, well, that was the exception that proves the rule or something. Definitely systems matter and we can have huge impact by changing them. And definitely it's highly troubling to see how particularly in certain areas of the country, how wired the world is against lots of people. But I, I do think it bears some discussion. Simplifying it too much may not serve us in communicating with everybody. I think so as neither a sociologist nor a psychologist, <laughs> I think where I come down is that's absolutely true, right? There are individual factors, individual familial factors that are always going to impact how people's lives turn out. And when I think about the work that I'm able to do, I can't control for those factors. I can't make sweeping generalizations about people's individual circumstances, individual potential, individual challenges. All I can do is think about the environment in which those individual realities are playing out. And so I think whether it's working in schools, working in education, the law, working in any sort of justice-oriented work, it's thinking about where do I feel comfortable passing judgments, first of all. And to me, I feel comfortable passing judgments on systems, not on individuals. And where do I feel capable of thinking about solutions or how to move forward? And again, for me, that happens at the system level and not at the level of telling individuals how they should or shouldn't be living their life. And of course, that that also can, risks oversimplifying. Uh, but I think that there's there's a question of how, given that complexity, where do you best fit in? For me, growing up as a white person, a privileged person, how am I best suited to engage with multiple levels of difficulty? And to me, that answer is at the systems level. That's made clear by your choices and by what you've said. And I honor that. Tell me a little bit about going back to City Year. Why did you do that? And what was that like? I knew as soon as I left, I was like, well, I, I suppose I should go to college. Here I'm preaching the value of education. And I, I guess I should go continue mine. But knew I'd be going back. I, I really found purpose in that work. I didn't feel like my work there was done. I think that one of the challenges with a year of service generally is it's not enough time to get good at something. It's enough time to start to get good at something. And then right when you're there, you're on to the next thing. And so I really felt like I owed it to the students I had worked with, the students I would be working with to continue to get better and to serve at a point when I could do more and be a more qualified AmeriCorps member in their classroom. So made the decision to go back quite early on. And the way it works at City Year is your first year, you're working with, directly with students. And at least when I went back, your second year, then you're working more with the AmeriCorps members who are working in classrooms. And you might work in a classroom part-time, but you're also supervising the first-year AmeriCorps members. Then your third year at City Year, you're on staff. You're not working in a classroom at all. You're really guiding other young people, AmeriCorps members, senior AmeriCorps members, through their year, year two years of service. That was a good fit for me, knowing that I would be going back and helping to guide people through what is a really challenging year. And 
and trying to work with people to approach the work thoughtfully and intentionally, even when it's challenging, felt felt like a really natural fit for me. And so it was an it was an easy decision. I I loved it. Like I said, I love New York. That intensity of experience also created really strong community, really strong ties with your fellow AmeriCorps members or city year folks. And that, you know, as I think about kind of the lessons that I've carried through to my work now and the community that you build through doing hard work is is a really essential through current from then until now. And so I think that there was also that piece of feeling like these are not my people. I have to go back and be with these people and be in community with with City Year, with AmeriCorps. That was really influential in that decision. How much did you run up against real legal questions in that time? You went on to, to law school, but how much was what you ran into there part of that decision? Certainly you ran into policy decisions, right? And so it was thinking about what is the policy landscape in which these schools and our work in schools is playing out. I think a big part of this was just ignorance on my part at the time of ignorance of what was happening in the courts, that I didn't necessarily make the connection between the law, the legal system itself, and the work that I was doing directly, but certainly made the connection between the law, law school, policy, and how that played out on the ground. That was really essential for me. But I think, did I see, frankly, the only interaction with with the law or lawyers that I had during my time at City Year was with some of our corporate sponsors, which gets into a lot of the work that I do now and kind of what I came to see in law school. But, but no, there wasn't a ton of overlap there. So tell me about that decision then. People go to law school for lots of reasons. And sometimes the reasons that they went to law school are not the reasons that they continue to pursue during or after. What was it in your case? Yeah, you'll note that I am not an education lawyer. So certainly things change for me. But I think generally, you know, thinking about the systemic work, thinking about the policy landscape, recognizing how these decisions that were made so far outside of the schools that I was working in, the communities that I was working in, were impacting people on the ground. I wanted to go to law school to be a part of trying to, as I said at the outset, remedy these issues before they had devastating consequences on the lives of real people. But in a pretty generic way, which is, I think, how a lot of people go to law school, is you want to do good work, you want to do impactful work, you want to do your part to make the world a better place. And you think that law school will help you figure out how to do that. So I applied to law school, got in, was accepted, and my experiences in law school were really across the board, generic public address work, public defense offices, gender equity organizations, mental health legal advisory, advisor committee, attorney general's office, the path of somebody who's like, I want to do good work and I don't exactly know how to do that with a law degree, but I know it's possible. You were not bound for corporate law. But I did do a stint. I did. And, and this has influenced a lot of my work. I wasn't bound for corporate law. And yet six months into my first year of law school, found myself going to the receptions with the big law firms and hearing what I think a lot of law students hear, which is, oh, you want to do good work? Well, the best way to do good work as a lawyer is to do pro bono work at a Wall Street law firm. And I was like, oh, wow, that's not what I thought was the best way to do good work. But <laughs> everybody is saying that maybe it's true. And and I did spend, you know, six weeks, two months at a law firm my second summer. But fortunately for me, it was able to pivot off of that path pretty quickly. It was not the right path for me. Well, it is the right path for some people and people do good work as pro bono 
lawyers uh, with some of their time, but I I sort of get why it wouldn't be a good fit for you. I don't think it would be for me if I had gone the law school route. It's an intellectual challenge to go to law school from what I understand. I read the Scott Turo 1L book about Harvard Law, which I know they've made many reforms since then and made it a more humane place, allegedly. What was it like intellectually for you? I found it to be one of the most satisfying intellectual experiences of my life. And I say that thinking very little about my classroom experience. I had some really, really amazing classes that I do think pushed me to think harder than I had ever thought before. I'm thinking of a constitutional history class I took with Michael Klarman that helped me develop my personal theory of change that made me think about the world in a really different way. I think a lot of the classes I took in law school, torts, contracts, kind of your generic law school curriculum, like they were hard, but I don't know that they pushed me intellectually. Where I grew in that way was from my peers. The people that I was able to meet in law school, certainly with many exceptions, but the folks who I spent most of my time with in law school were brilliant, creative thinkers who had already done such amazing work, even in their mid to late 20s, early 30s, had just had these incredible careers, were doing fantastic organizing work, were thinking about the future in really exciting and innovative ways. It challenged my entire framework. It really, really, I thought was just, I've, I've never learned so much in such a short period of time. And it was really incredible in that way. After you graduate from a Harvard Law type school, there's a lot of doors open. There's a lot of different possible paths. Tell me about the choice you made. So it's funny that you say that because I think it's so true. And I think that one of the things that can push people to careers that aren't necessarily what they intend to start out on, you know, that pushes people to corporate legal careers in particular is this sense that every door is open and I have to keep every single door open. And that if I do a clerkship and do a couple of years at a law firm, then every door is still open to me. Whereas if I pigeonhole myself with many quotation marks there, you know, if I do public defense or legal aid or go to a workers' rights firm, then I'm that person forever and I've closed doors. And even though that isn't true, I think that fallacy continues to exist. So it puts a lot of stress on people early, early in their careers to think that they've got to keep every single door still open to them, even when, frankly, how many doors do you need open? How many career paths can you have? How many jobs can you take? Like you don't need all those doors open. So I, you know, wrestled with that for a little bit. I had this offer at a law firm that I held open for far too long. I considered a clerkship and ultimately passed on all of that and decided to continue the organizing work that my classmates and I had started when we were in school. So we had started organizing really in a grassroots way when we were first year law students early 2018 as at the time the Pipeline Parity Project. And over the course of our second year, it really started to take a new form. And, you know, we were attracting interest from other campuses, from other folks in the legal profession, out in the world beyond the walls of our law school, and started to think about, do we want to continue this organizing? Is there something to build on here? Is there something we want to grow? We came to the realization that yes, and then the question was how. And we knew that we would have to have somebody who was able to commit to doing this work full-time after law school to keep it up. So I kind of did it on a one-year trial basis. I told my co-founders, I was like, I'll commit to it for a year, but I'm going to have a clerkship on the other end of it. So if this all fails and we run out of money and I can't eat, 
I can pivot. Fortunately, it's worked out. I'm still here almost three years later. So, you know, <laughs> it still feels scary to not have that like safety net, but no regrets. Absolutely none. It's been an exciting couple of years since law school. How do I understand the name? People's Parody Project is um, a name that if you're spelling your email address like over the phone to somebody, Molly at People's Parody, they're like, what? I need you to use every single letter there. So People's Parody Project, the origin of the name is really thinking about our legal system and how does our legal system work right now? Well, it's our argument is that it is rigged in favor of the corporate, the wealthy, the powerful, and the people, workers, consumers, everyday folks do not have equal access to our legal system, do not have an equal chance for justice under our legal system. And we want to change that. We want people to be on parity at a minimum with corporations, with wealthy elites. So are you saying that the corporate elites, the wealthy and the powerful are not always right? I know this is going to be a crazy <laughs> argument, but unlike what our Supreme Court and other judges seem to think, we would argue that they are not always right. Because I see that they win a lot of the cases. So wouldn't that just suggest that they are more in the right more of the time? You know, it's it's really remarkable. So this is what we started asking ourselves when we were in law school is how is it that we have ostensibly this system of justice in this country where two parties can enter a courtroom and no matter their power disparities outside of the courtroom, they're on an equal footing. They have an equal chance to make their case procure justice. And like you say, we know that that isn't what's happening. Well, why is that? It's because lawyers and members of the legal profession have spent decades and decades rigging the system so that it doesn't work for people. And there isn't parity and you don't have an equal chance. Me as a consumer or a worker does not have the chance to seek justice in any meaningful way. What do you mean by rigging the system? Is it the case? I mean, so like, I know for sure that like a rich person can buy a better lawyer in a lot of cases or more lawyers. They can do things that that accentuate having more money, the advantages of that in court. And it makes a difference, the skill of your lawyer. It makes a difference what resources they have and the team they have, all of those things. But what do you mean by they're rigging the the law itself or how's that happening? So I think a really, to answer your question with an anecdote, I think that a really powerful example of this is forced arbitration, which is one of the first issues that we organized around. So forced arbitration clauses are buried in employment contracts, consumer contracts. They essentially say that you... If you've signed this contract, then you've waived your right to a jury trial. If you have a dispute with your employer, with this company, you can't go to court. You have to go to this privatized justice system, this arbitrator who is often handpicked by the company where there's no right of appeal, where the entire proceeding is secret. And the numbers show that you're more likely to be struck by lightning than you are to win a case when you are forced into arbitration. So that's even worse than the, the disparities in the court? So this is, it's worse than the disparities in the court. Yeah. So, you know, we have these horrible disparities in court, but that isn't enough for the corporations. There's still a chance that a worker consumer could win in court, particularly when they can band together with others and violate class action. So they want to keep it out of court separately. So you have this question of how is this legal? Well, Congress passed a law in the 1920s saying that if businesses, you know, two entities with mutual power 
made the decision to arbitrate rather than go to court and had signed a contract to that effect, then they had to do that. Courts couldn't tear up that contract. They had agreed. Fast forward 50 years, you have corporations who are wondering, well, if I can arbitrate with other businesses, what if I force an employee, a consumer into arbitration? At that point, you have pro-corporate judges who have filled the federal judiciary who are willing to essentially take this little-known statute from 100 years ago and expand its meaning beyond all recognition. So there's a series of Supreme Court cases throughout the last 20, 30 years expanding the use of forced arbitration, saying it's not just applicable between businesses. Actually, the statute now covers any arbitration agreement, period. You can put that into any contract. Exactly. So that's not what Congress dictated. That's what judges, essentially handpicked by corporate America, decided. They are put on the bench. They enact these decisions that favor corporate America. And then corporate America is able to, again, not just litigate in courtrooms that are favorable to them, but actually keep out cases from the justice system entirely. I used to run a company or still run a little company. And I, my attitude towards arbitration was it's so expensive to prosecute anything in the courtroom. I was in a big federal lawsuit at one point. It cost me a tremendous amount to defend, even though it was completely wrongheaded. And it took six years, I think. So I thought an arbitration cause in a contract was a good thing because it kept me out of the snarl of that. And it seemed like it might be more fair, but it's upsetting to hear. I mean, is it bad when it's between businesses or is it only bad when it's like a corporation with a lot of power against its workers or something? Generally, I think business to business, when the two parties have equal bargaining power and they're writing the contract and are actually agreeing to the terms of the contract, I think that's a very different situation. And so a good example of this, right, is you have union arbitration. When a union worker has a dispute with their employer, they're often going into arbitration. But that's a system that was designed by two parties that actually had power at the bargaining table, the union and the company. Same goes if it's business to business arbitration, you've got real say there. You don't have to agree to the terms of the contract without questioning. That's very different when you're signing your Netflix contract or agreeing to the terms and conditions when you're getting into a lift. Or when you're a worker who shows up at the first day of work for this job that you need to provide for yourself and your family, and your contract is slapped on your desk and buried on page 13, is this arbitration clause and you don't have any ability to strike it. And if you question it, you're going to be shown the door before you've worked an hour. So I think that's where you see massive abuse of the system and where it becomes such a problem. The other point that I'll make while we're talking about forced arbitration is how little known and little understood these contract clauses are, yet how ubiquitous they are. So the majority of non-union private sector workers have signed an arbitration clause It's something like three consumer arbitration clauses in circulation for every one American. So you do the math, like we've definitely all signed these in the consumer context, yet very, very few people know what they are. And I think that goes to show kind of one of our core foundations of PPP and the work that we're doing is that people don't know what's happening in the legal system. And judges are rewriting the rules of the game every single day, changing our ability to exert our own power over our lives. And while occasionally you'll have a big case like Dobbs that breaks through and people hear about it, so often these decisions are happening without public scrutiny, 
when judges are are not being held accountable for what they're doing. And we're just all living under this, this rule by judge with very little awareness of what's going on. And so we really see part of our role is not just fighting against these abuses of the legal system, but also doing the public education and getting the word out about what it is that judges are doing on a daily basis, not just in the most high profile cases, and how that impacts the playing field for all of us. Does that mean that you have done some work trying to change that particular subject that we're talking about? Yeah. So one of our earliest campaigns in 2018 was organizing against the use of forced arbitration. So that's how we developed our whole organizing model, which is direct action, public education, policy change. We found out when we were first-year law students that it had become fairly common practice for corporate law firms to require their employees, including you know summer interns, to sign forced arbitration clauses. We saw this as a really important way to educate our peers about the harm of these contracts, which again, even in law school, I certainly didn't learn about this. So we started organizing both at Harvard and then across law school campuses to bring together students who would push back on these corporate firms' use of arbitration clauses, called on students to boycott firms that utilize forced arbitration clauses and employment contracts. And not just in employment contracts for lawyers, but in employment contracts for anybody, for custodial staff, for paralegals, for the cafeteria staff, to get law students at some of the top law schools to say, we won't interview with these firms, we won't go to these firms if you continue to use forced arbitration clauses. That organizing was quite successful. We had a number of the largest law firms in the world and the use of forced arbitration internally. So firms like Kirkland & Ellis, Sidley Austin who dropped forced arbitration for all employees, which was fantastic. That might be a few thousand workers at any one of these firms, but that's small potatoes. My experience as a CEO has been, I go to my legal advisor and I say, I I need an employment contract and they give me a template. And that template, I'd have to look, but I bet you I have an arbitration clause in that with my employees without having thought through it. And in fact, probably thinking that it was a good idea, that it was a reasonable way to settle a dispute, maybe even a better way to settle a dispute. I hadn't thought here I might be participating in that. And so you can see how if that's become the template because the law firms are serving the ownership when they're building an employment contract, you can see why it would spread around like that and why someone like me, who's a relatively progressive entrepreneur, would be following along. Exactly. And it, and it shows the power of lawyers in our system and how much influence lawyers have over things. So, you know, you wouldn't necessarily think about the impact that lawyers are having over the workplace conditions in a small company. And yet, who hands you that contract and how does that influence the rights of workers in that workplace? And it, so our theory was that if we organize with law students and get law students to agree, hey, we don't want to be bound by one of these clauses that prevents us from suing if we're sexually harassed at work or if our wages are stolen or we're discriminated against on the basis of race. If I don't want to be bound by that. Maybe I should think twice before writing this in to somebody else's employment contract. Maybe I should think twice before I agree to compel arbitration on behalf of my major corporate client 
when their workers have been wronged on the job. And then you can use law students and you can use lawyers who have been educated about this issue, who have a personal stake in the issue to do the policy advocacy, to go to D.C. and lobby the government to pass the Forced Arbitration and Justice Repeal Act, which passed the House for the first time just a few years ago, and really start to think about where do we enact the policy change so that all workers are freed from this judge-created situation that we find ourselves de- dealing with. Can I ask you about a, a another thing that I see in these contracts, the non-compete clause? So my first job out of college, I signed a contract and I had a non-compete clause. And I honored that. I sat a year out from competing with the firm that I signed that with. And then I helped build software for a competing firm. And then I did it again later after that thing had much had expired much longer. But I signed my own employees because I'd had that model. I had a contract like that because I felt like they're learning my business. I don't want them out there doing that. What I've heard is that those have, things have become less and less enforceable. Is that going the other direction or what's happening in that in the non-compete part of this? I'm so glad you asked. So non-competes are another, you know, we work on course of contract issues generally as one of our core areas, non-competes being a big one. To start with, there's been a massive proliferation of non-compete clauses. I mean, when I tell you the absurd non-compete clauses that I have seen, you'll have a barista at a coffee shop making minimum wage in D.C., who has a non-compete clause saying that they can't work at another coffee shop as a barista. That's ludicrous. Yeah. For years, within 10, you know, hundreds of miles. <laughs> the question's about enforceability. But yeah. if you're an 18-year-old who signed this contract, you don't know what's enforceable. No, what you're, it's scary that you're going to run into the, you know, into the big corporate spanking. Exactly. So we've increasingly seen state legislatures step in to try to curb or outright ban the use of non-competes. California has one of the strongest laws, but other states are following suit. D.C. Um, has some uh, really good legislation that was just enacted to protect workers from non-compete clauses. What we're now seeing is that we still have a lawyer problem. We still have lawyers who are taking advantage of the fact that most workers aren't following every twist and turn of contract law and don't necessarily know that these are unenforceable. So they're still writing them into contracts. You know, I talked to friends in California who are like, what do you mean that a non-compete is unenforceable? I sign non-competes all the time. And I'm like, fun fact, those are actually unenforceable, but you still have lawyers writing them into contracts. You still have the threat of enforcement if people don't know better. Sometimes that's the company's fault. I think often it is, but many times it's these form contracts. They're getting them from lawyers who are telling them, oh, this is standard language, put it in there. Otherwise you're at a competitive disadvantage. Bing, bang, boom, people sign it. And all of a sudden, their freedom to work is limited. We're currently working with a coalition of folks to try to get state bar associations to acknowledge that this is happening and make clear that it's unethical for lawyers to be including blatantly unenforceable contract provisions in worker-consumer contracts. But it's an uphill fight because the law, it's a self-regulating profession. And you're a pretty small group, you know, up against a big system that has evolved a certain way. And a lot of entrenched interests who don't want to hold lawyers accountable um, and who don't want to challenge the status quo. Luckily, we've got some we've got some other partners, but but it's yeah, it's all uphill. What about the the non disclosure agreement? Those seem to be more enforceable 
you see those in a widespread way. You hear Trump doing this with, you know, with campaign staff or I think even in the government, but certainly in his business work. But but I've I've had to sign a billion non disclosure agreements with people. What's the status of that? And is that an area that you're uncomfortable with? Yeah. So anything that limits workers' power to speak out about their experiences, their experiences of again discrimination, mistreatment, harassment at work are So should it exempt that kind of thing? Like like some kind of real malfeasance as opposed to corporate secrets being shared or something? It's a great question. And what we have seen time and again is that people argue that, well, my trade secrets have to be protected. And they are. There are laws on the book to protect the sharing of trade secrets. And very rarely are non-disclosure laws enforced to protect trade secrets. They're enforced to protect the reputation of bad actors in a company. There is there have been some really exciting developments there. So I think a very interesting example um, that also loops back to forced arbitration because all roads lead to forced arbitration is in California. So there were a number of activists who joined together to pass legislation right at the height of the Me Too movement in California to essentially outlaw the use of non-disclosure agreements in cases of sexual harassment or sexual misconduct, which I think overwhelmingly popular. Then what we saw is individuals who had been wronged in the workplace who were Black women, who didn't know what part of their experiences they could speak out about. Is it, you know, if were they being discriminated against, harassed on the basis of the fact that they were women? Or was it because they were Black? Or was it because they were Black women? The challenges inherent with allowing people to speak about some things at work, some mistreatment at work, but not other kinds of mistreatment at work, led to California recently passing updated legislation that is a much broader ban on non-disclosure agreements, recognizing that people need to be able to speak out about what happens. And that when you enforce silence on victims of workplace wrongs, you are empowering the bad actors, you are empowering the predators. And that system had to change. So there have been developments there. We recently had some good legislation passed at the federal level. But again, this is all very piecemeal. Every time that there's a win for workers when it comes to contract law or employment law, companies are creative. And as we started with, they have really good lawyers and they're able to give a lot of money to really smart people to come up with other ways to use contract law or other areas of the law to keep workers down. And we have a Supreme Court and other courts, lower courts that are ready to stand with those companies. And so we have a long ways to go, but there have been some good and I think really promising developments on that front. So we've kind of delved into some specifics in some particular areas, but can you give me a broader statement of what is the People's Parity Project mission and what are the general areas that you're working in? Yeah, (laughs) Hard to get me to stop once we start talking about forced arbitration. Almost everyone I've talked to about forced arbitration has felt the same way. So People's Parity Project is a now national organization that organizes law students and lawyers to unrig the law. So we are, as we've just discussed, thinking about everything from how is the law rigged at the tiniest level, the tiniest clauses of your contract, up to who sits on the U.S. Supreme Court and what is the power of the U.S. Supreme Court and everything in between. And really thinking about what is the role that lawyers have to account for in how the system currently works and who it works for and for whom it does not. 
So we do that through our law school chapters. We have about 20 law school chapters now. We just started our first round of lawyers chapters. So really exciting to get those kicked off and are continuing to grow from there. That's our very quick elevator pitch. I talked to a guy, what's the name of the group? Upsolve. Do you know them? It has to do with bankruptcy law. There's a tremendous number of people who could be served by using their right to bankruptcy, but can't afford to exercise that right. And so they've built software to make that process easier. And he referred to kind of a category of organizations that were working to improve the actual use of the law or the rights by facilitating people to use it better. Have you run across that sort of group? I haven't heard of Upsal, although I will now be looking into them. It's Rohan Pavaluri of Upsolve, helping low-income families file bankruptcy for free. That's awesome. Yeah. we Even if there is something written in, into the Constitution, a right, that right isn't realized unless you have a way to exercise it. And I think that kind of fits into the parity problem in the law, right? Absolutely. Yeah, it really does. And I think I would consider those sort of direct access to justice groups like a close cousin of ours, really thinking about what happens when you That's have... the term access to justice that he yeah. that he used, yes. Yeah, yeah. And and a lot of the work that we do is around access to justice, but um I think that groups like that that are thinking about the intersection of access to justice advocacy and direct legal services. Whereas we don't have the direct legal services component, we're doing the advocacy, we're doing the organizing that I think is, again, very, very closely related. Tell me about your organization as an organization. You agreed to be the executive director. That means raise money. Does that mean hire staff? Does that mean do it all yourself? Like what's the stage of development of this organization? Yes, to all, all of that. So we have a staff of four full-time folks now. We have our policy director, our organizing director, and then just last month hired our state courts manager who's leading up um, our national state courts work, which is really exciting. I do a lot of fundraising. We're really fortunate to be supported by a truly fantastic both board of directors and advisory council. I think for a young organization that started the way we did, which really grew out of grassroots organizing rather than coming to the table with money. But we came with ideas and we came with a lot of passion and we're fortunate and I think very privileged in part by virtue of the law school that we started at to be connected with leaders, experts, advocates in the field who have been able to vouch for us and really help us grow. So you know, even though they aren't necessarily involved in the day-to-day, our board and our advisory council has been essential to our work. Do you have like Harvard Law professors and people like that? We have Nico Bui, who is on our board of directors. Is He's our only Harvard Law professor on the board or the advisory council right now. What size should you be? Like if to, to really, I mean, I'm sure you're having impact, but like if you could wave the magic wand and get fully funded and fully staffed, what would that look like? This is a really interesting question, obviously one that we grapple with a lot because I think it leads to the question of how do we on the legal left, the progressive left, or the you know progressive legal space challenge what they've done on the right? 
What do we need on the left to combat the influence of the Federalist Society, the Chamber of Commerce, and other anti-progress forces within our legal system? And so some of that is what does PPP need and how big should we be, but also what does what should the progressive legal movement look like and how many organizations should be a part of that and how are we coordinating and collaborating because we're not going to do what the right does. We're never going to be one organization to conquer all because that's not how the left works. But what do we need in order to really give the Federalist Society a fight? And we need to be bigger. We can't be a staff of four. We need to be, you know, 10, 15, 20 people. I mean, we're fortunate in that we don't have to do it all at PPP because we're able to work with really incredible partners who share our values, who in many ways share our vision and who are able to take different pieces of the puzzle. So I don't know that I have a solid answer to that, but I know that we are going up against a massive ingrained machine on the right that has been more effective than almost any conservative operation in the last hundred years. Is that framing of progressive versus right, making it part of the partisan divide, is that going to serve the goal? I think of a great deal of the world in those terms as, you know, who I interview and my my own personal history might attest. But the worker versus the corporation is not necessarily always a right-left thing. And fairness towards the average person in the courts seems like something of very broad significance to most of the electorate. There are things like ballot initiatives in states where that partisan divide doesn't get triggered. And so it's not 50-49, but 65% of people will vote for something. Do you want to be part of the progressive ecosystem? That's what I follow and care about. Or do you want to like have a different angle on it? Or are you already embedded in one way? I think that when you have, when you're working within the legal system that we have, the legal system that the Federalist Society and the Chamber of Commerce have built, you have to pick a side. And and that's the reality. And so I think there are a number of issues that we care about very much, like the issue of forced arbitration, that does not have to fit into a traditional partisan dichotomy. On the whole, this idea of should we have a legal system that serves justice or should we have a legal system that serves profit? it does shake out on a political spectrum. And and we're not going to have somebody deciding between joining their PPP chapter on campus and their Federalist Society chapter on campus. What I will say, though, to that point of corporations versus workers not necessarily being, you know, falling neatly on a partisan spectrum, I would agree with that. And I think one of the reasons why we exist is because we think that Frankly, corporate America has influenced the legal left far too much and that there is real work that needs to happen there and real space for organizations that are combating corporate dominance of the legal system. There's also quite a spectrum among corporations in how progressive they are. I don't know if that's affecting their legal practices like forced arbitration, but there's starting to be a change in alignment between Republicans starting to to not like the progressive moves that are happening in corporate America, at least as they see it on certain issues. Things are complicated. They are. And I also think that when you're thinking about corporate dominance of the system, of the legal system, there, while you might have corporations that 
think, for example, that the don't say gay legislation in Florida, that they think that's problematic and harmful, or they think, you know, violently overthrowing our democracy is bad. It doesn't generally change their legal strategy. It doesn't change the fact that they want the legal system to work for corporations and against everybody else. It doesn't change the fact that they are working for capital and for profit in a way that we would argue fundamentally harms the lived experiences of working people in this country. And I think a good example of this is you saw after Dobbs came out, a number of corporations saying that they would pay for their workers to travel across state lines to get abortions. Okay, that's good. Although I have a lot of questions about how that plays out when like somebody has to go ask their employer for help breaking the law. But those corporations are still giving to the same politicians that are advancing these anti-abortion laws in the states and that are supporting the Supreme Court justices who overturned Roe v. Wade. So so yes, they're better than the corporations that didn't say that. I would guess at, at the margins, but I don't I don't see them as fundamentally different, frankly. So some of the folks that I've talked to in the general progressive legal left want to expand the Supreme Court, want to make other reforms to the system. Who are your best allies in what you're trying to do? Who do you end up working shoulder to shoulder with and so on? So we're very active in the court reform space. So we work with a lot of folks who I know you've had on um, Take Back the Court, Indivisible, Stand Up America, Demand Justice. We work with them on a very regular basis. We do a lot of work with workers' rights groups, you know, organizations like the National Employment Lawyers Association, the National Employment Law Project, Towards Justice, Center for Popular Democracy. We also do a lot of work around state courts. And I think that there's really, really pivotal work to be done there. And frankly, it's more accessible for most folks to engage with their state courts than it is to engage with something as big as federal Supreme Court reform. So we work with incredible partners on the ground at the state level. I'm thinking like Center for Community Alternatives in New York, which is doing fantastic work actually right now around the New York State Court of Appeals, which is their highest court. Groups like LEAD Ohio and the Buckeye Justice Forum, La Defensa and Ground Game LA in California, people who are doing really important, really under the radar work that is impacting how the legal system works at the state level, which is where the vast majority of Americans will experience the legal system. Those are some of the groups who come to mind as kind of our, our core partners. It sounds like you've learned a lot doing this job and clearly have a passion for it, right? Like anyone who wants to engage vociferously about the small type in a contract. I love that. Where are you in terms of your stamina for doing this? Is this something that you're thinking, oh, I got to go do the clerkship and get back into a different game? Are you committed to this for a career? Is it is it still year to year? How, how is this affecting you? Because I know that when you're tilting at windmills, which to some extent you are, it's hard to move the windmill and it's tiring personally. It is. And I think, you know, when we talk about what is our end goal, well, it's to have a true national movement of lawyers and law students who are committed to spending their careers working for true justice and for legal systems that truly work for the people and who can tackle everything from expanding the Supreme Court to ultimately disempowering the court to changing the composition of the state courts to outlawing forced arbitration. It's a lot. And I think that it is, especially, you know, starting this work in a pandemic and everything else, of course, it's tiring. But for me personally, it's almost impossible to imagine going back to work that isn't 
that isn't this work because to go and do workers' rights litigation when I know that we have spent decades filling the courts with judges who are hostile to workers' rights, who have enacted decisions that make it almost impossible to enforce the rights of workers, to go do public defense when we know that we have judiciaries that are hostile to the rights of criminal defendants, it's very hard to imagine doing that. And I think that it's why we've had folks who want to organize with us and who want to do this work, even though they're working full-time as lawyers or in law school full-time, it's because they want to have a fighting chance to fight for their clients. And they know that we need to do the system changing work in order for them to be able to do that effectively. So even though it, it is challenging and it is hard and it's, I hate fundraising and like there are parts of the job that suck, I, I really can't imagine doing other work than this. Yeah. What should I have asked you that I haven't? I feel like we covered a lot. This was a good conversation. I think it was. I've certainly learned a lot about what you're doing. Is the focus on law schools and the students something that you will broaden out? Or is that kind of your niche and how you fit into the ecosystem? Organizing law students and lawyers is our bread and butter. We have our national priorities. And I think, you know, this conversation has really focused on those, but the heart of what we do is organize law students and lawyers. And that will always be true. I started this point earlier of the sense of community and what it is that, what is our theory of change? And our theory of change is that the legal profession has outsized impact on this country. You need to organize within the legal profession that the experience of organizing as a law student or as a lawyer can be transformative and can help people stay true to their values that they enter law school with, but law school often shoves out of them, that it helps you build a community that will help you stay strong, that will help you lead these organizing campaigns or participate in these organizing campaigns that will have big impact. This is what we do. And it's definitely not something that will change. Last question. What, what is... What is making you most optimistic about positive change in this area? Two things. One is just really the exciting momentum that we've seen at the federal level. We've seen how court reform has entered mainstream progressive discourse at this point in a way that I don't think anybody would have expected even five years ago. We've seen how the conversation around who should be a judge has completely changed from the Obama administration to the Biden administration. We're seeing judges appointed who we never would have seen appointed in past Democratic administrations. So that momentum is really, really exciting. The other thing that I'll point to along similar lines, but at the state level, is seeing the work that's happening in New York. Center for Community Alternatives is leading this really remarkable courts work there where they've gathered this incredible coalition of folks. We've got PPP organizers there. You've got public defenders. You've got law professors, all of whom are committed to spending their spare time working to get the court that New York deserves. New York, a progressive state, has had an egregiously conservative court of appeals for years that had tremendously harmful impacts in the 2020 midterms when the New York Court of Appeals struck down. The redistricting plan, yeah. Exactly. We saw the implications that that had for the United States House of Representatives. And there's just this incredible group of people who are working to ensure that that doesn't happen again and that New York has a court that serves working people. So that 
momentum that this has at the national level and then the organizing and grassroots energy that's there at the local level, the combination of that, it really feels hopeful. I'm, I'm glad to hear that. I appreciate your time today. It's super interesting what you're doing and I wish you the best. Anything else you want to say? No, this is great. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you. That was Molly Coleman. She's at peoplesparityproject.org. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.